Hello and welcome to Talking You Retina, the official podcast of the European Society of Retina Specialists. My name is Jonathan McRae. In this podcast, we bring you expert discussions and interviews with leaders from Retina and beyond. We'll also keep you up to date with the latest news from the Society. In this episode, we'll be getting updates from around the world in the area of diabetic retinopathy. But before we go into that, uh, just notice that on April the 13th, Camille Bone will be chairing a webinar on CSC. It's called Central Serous Chlorioretinopathy, Shedding an Evidence-Based Light on a Mysterious Disease. He's assembled quite a faculty of experts who will cover pathogenesis, the choroid diagnosis and differential diagnosis, and treatment approaches as well. So that's Thursday the 13th of April at 8pm CET. Registration opens soon on the Uretina website. Uh, so you can register there, uretina.org. All right, as I say, uh, in this episode, we're going to be looking at some of the latest developments from across the world in diabetic retinopathy. And Eduardo Midena from Padua University Hospital in Italy has uh, brought together a fantastic faculty for the discussion. They are Jakob Grausland from the University of Southern Denmark, Carol Chung from Chinese University of Hong Kong, Enrico Borelli from San Raffaele Hospital in Italy, and Daniel Ting from the Singapore National Eye Centre. Eduardo, it's great to have you back and a full house you've brought with you too. Looking forward to the discussion. Over to you. Okay, good morning everybody and I thank you again to Uretina for providing us the possibility to have this podcast on diabetic retinopathy. And we have selected, as was telling to you, some special topics as the title is From the World. The speakers are from over the world, both Europe and Asia, the both parts of the world. And the topics are related to some intriguing new points in diabetic retinopathy that you remember is one of the uh, most important, I think, topics in your retina uh, website program in this case. So I think that we may begin. And uh, the first part of the podcast uh, is given by uh, Jakob Grausland from Odense in Denmark. And his topic is diabetic retinopathy in type 1 diabetes, a nationwide Danish court, a very particular experience. Thank you, Jakob. Well, thank you so much, Eduardo, for inviting me to be back on this great podcast. It's really good to be here with so many dedicated specialists from all around the world in the field of diabetic retinopathy. And I'm so proud to present for you some of the data we have now from Denmark, where we followed all patients with type 1 diabetes who had attended diabetic retinopathy screening. And in this particular study, we look at the presence and the development of diabetic retinopathy and side-threatening proliferative diabetic retinopathy in this cohort. So, so in Denmark, as in so many other countries, diabetic retinopathy is one of the leading causes of blindness and visual impairment. But we have had a 78% drop in diabetes-induced blindness within the last 20 years. And a major reason for this is really that we have a national screening program now that has been running for 10 years. And each year in Denmark, we screen approximately 100,000 patients, and this is tax-funded, and almost all patients with at least type 1 diabetes are attending this program. So in this particular study, we looked at all patients with type 1 diabetes from the National Screening Program, and that was 17,000 patients, and we evaluated the 
prevalence of diabetic retinopathy and five-year incidences of diabetic retinopathy and uh, proliferative diabetic retinopathy. And we did that by linking various national databases. So going straight to the results, at the time of the first screening in Denmark, 45% of all patients with type 1 diabetes have some kind of diabetic retinopathy in at least one eye. And 9.4% of patients have proliferative diabetic retinopathy at first screening. So what happened then for the next five years, if you follow patients who have one diabetes for five years. So in five years in Denmark, in type one diabetes, 8.9% will develop diabetic retinopathy and 2.0% will progress to proliferative diabetic retinopathy. So what were the most important risk factors for diabetic retinopathy and for progression and progression to proliferative diabetic retinopathy? Well, in all models, we found that longer duration of diabetes was independently a risk factor. Systemic comorbidity was a strong risk factor as well. And the use of antihypertensive treatment was also one of the risk factors who identified patients at the highest risks. One of the good news was that during the five years that we followed patients, for each year we found a declining risk of progression to proliferative diabetic retinopathy. So just following patients for that short amount of time led to a substantial decrease. It was almost half the risk that the patient developed during those three years. So just to round up, uh, this was strengthened as it was a national cohort. We had all patients with type 1 diabetes that we followed in the program. We used uh, well-validated endpoints from various national registers. But you have to be aware that we did not have data on glycemic control in the study. We did not have exact blood pressure measurements. We did not know anything about smoking or body mass index. So these were really the limitations. So just to give you the bullets here in the end, we followed all patients with type 1 diabetes from an entire nation for five years. 44% had diabetic retinopathy at first screening. 8.9% developed diabetic retinopathy within five years and 2.0% progressed to proliferative diabetic retinopathy. So those were the results and currently we are looking at the patients uh, for another five years to see what will happen in long-term incident studies. Uh, okay, very nice, Jacob, from this point of view. Just a quick question. Uh, how do you screen? I probably I missed the information. How do you screen the, the, the diabetic patients, the type 1 diabetic? That is really an excellent question and that's really the key. So, so in Denmark, we have national screening guidelines, which I was uh, proud to be the main author of. They stated that for every patient with diabetes, you would need lifelong screening. This can be performed at hospitals or by practicing ophthalmologists using at least two field retinal images. And 
actually we also have OCT integrated in the screening program. So if you are in suspicion of diabetic macular edema, you can do an OCT before you refer the patient to any potential treatment. It's very nice because it's absolutely important and it should be underlined because you are, we are uh, linking the two most important. One is both fully objective, point one, because photography is better than ophthalmoscopic examination as shown by English people more, uh, a lot of years ago, but you, you are telling us that you are ending, adding OCT, which is instrumental for the diagnosis of uh, DME. Perfect. Thank you for the moment, then we, we will be back. And now, if Daniel is over there, Daniel is professor of ophthalmology in Singapore, okay? And he is uh, uh, introducing us to another topic, which is similar toward the evolution of diabetic retinopathy, particularly in using uh, the, the key word at the moment, artificial intelligence, because everything is uh, oriented to some artificial intelligent tool. And the title of his presentation is a multimodal artificial intelligent algorithm to predict three and five year referable diabetic retinopathy incidence and progression about the low risk diabetic population, the diabetic retinopathy predictor. Thank you, Daniel. Thanks, Dado, for the kind invitation to share with the uh, the Retina crowds and uh, and like what Jakob has uh, said uh, previously, I think diabetes is going to be a global epidemic, you know, uh, moving forward. And we know one in ten people, you know, by twenty forty would have diabetes, and that actually equates to about six hundred forty millions, uh, you know, people from all around the world uh, is going to suffer from diabetes. And we also know it's really important to screen for diabetic retinopathy among these populations. And of course, COVID for the last three years has really hit the world really hard. And the entire world knows that there is an urgent need for digital transformations uh, in, in terms of how we deliver healthcare, you know, moving forward for the next 10, 20, or even longer years. So coming back to the study that we have done, we have actually used a 10 years national screening program, I mean, diabetes population to build the AI algorithms. And prior to that, we know that the uh, Peter Scanlon group, um, Simon Harding groups, and NEGM, the addict DCCT trials have shown that it's actually safe to increase the DR screening interval for patients with very good glycemic controls and with a very low risk profile, uh, vascular risk factors patients. So, Using this as the uh, background, we actually thought, can we actually use AI to look into the future? So the future being the three years and five years among the low-risk patient, and potentially can we even incorporate some of these risk profile to personalize or to stratify the screening interval uh, so that we don't actually have to see them on a yearly basis. So this is a, a study that we have started a few years back. Uh, using the National Screening Program, as I said before, 10-year series, we have close to 10,000 patients with no DR and mild MPDR patients. And we want to predict who are these patients who have high risk to actually develop referable DR. So the definition for referable DR that we use is moderate MPDR or worse, including diabetic macular edema at three years and five years point. So our study was actually quite promising. The result actually shows that Using color fundus photos alone, 
we can actually predict up to 80% of these patients to develop referable DR at three years and five years. And if we actually incorporate the uh, HbA1c and the baseline DR severity level, we can push the AUC up to 85%. So what is some of the clinical implication if we can accurately predict how these patients can behave in three years and five years time? And potentially we could help a lot of these uh, screening programs that are already expressing and experiencing a lot of the stress and the burden within the countries to prolong or to lengthen the DR screening interval meaning that you don't really need to see all these patients on a yearly basis anymore. And the workload of the screening program could potentially be cut up to 25 to 50% if you don't really need to see these uh, low-risk patients. So, I mean, these are some of the findings that we actually found and that we presented in Macular Society. We are currently trying to validate these AI algorithms using the different data sets from all around the world to show the generalizability and hopefully we can actually have something, uh, you know, to update everyone in the upcoming U-Retina or next year. Thanks very much for the kind intention to share. Thank you, Daniel. Uh, I have a question. You pointed to that, uh, this, you really point to a problem that Jacob introduced, the global epidemics of diabetes. Therefore, probably it will become really probably the most important disorder, blinding conditions in the world with the evolution, with the increase in income, even in countries with low income at the moment. And therefore, I think the step of moving from a, not a standard, very precise method that using Denmark, this is a nice country uh, with a full population examined to a possibly higher population even in yours or in mine, in Europe or in other continents. Uh, what are you really doing for the AA uh, multimodal imaging? What does this technically mean? So multimodal meaning that uh, you could combine the structured data and unstructured data uh, into the model and then it gives you one output. So basically the structured data, meaning that HbA1c could be considered one of the structured data and then the unstructured data usually we mean by imaging. So of course, um, this is tailored to these specific use cases. Other non-DR screening related technology, we also seen people using genomics. We also see people using the different imaging modality to actually combine all these different data modality to build the multi-model AI system. So this is what uh, technically it means. Yeah, so so it's uh, the message by Daniel is very important. It means what technology is uh, providing us help uh, in the future. And I think that it is really, really fascinating. So thank you at the moment. Then we, if we have more questions, we do it at the end of the presentation. And we move to Enrico in this case. Enrico is working in Italy and he is presenting something that may, may be integrated in the story because he is presenting something about the retinal function and the retinal structure in patients with diabetic retinopathy. Thank you, Enrico. So thanks to Professor Midena for the opportunity of sharing this with uh, the Uretina community 
uh, we uh, did perform a multimodal imaging study as it is always important to recognize imaging biomarkers associated with macular function in patients with diabetes. This is important as this may improve our understanding on this disease. So uh, we know that there is an early neurodegeneration in patients with diabetes. Several studies employing structural OCT has revealed that there is an inner retinal thinning in patients with diabetes. These studies were not able to actually show that there is an outer retinal thinning, but we also know that in patients with diabetes, there is an early reduced function of photoreceptors. So in this study, we tried to perform a multimodal imaging study as we employed structural CT, OCTA, and we also perform a microperimetry in order to investigate imaging biomarkers associated with macular function in patients with diabetes. We uh, enrolled uh, 30 patients with uh, type 1 diabetes. All these patients were characterized by a mild diabetic retinopathy and normal visual acuity, so 20-20 Snellen. And uh, all these patients had a first diagnosis of mild diabetic retinopathy. So they were screening for diabetic retinopathy and that was the first time they had a diagnosis of diabetic retinopathy. Of course, we also included healthy subjects in order to perform a comparison. We perform structural CT or CTA and again, microperimetry. Structural CT was important to study the inner and the outer retinal thickness in order to investigate the presence of a neurodegeneration in these patients. Microperimetry was important to investigate the macular function in these patients in different regions, in the foveal and in the parafoveal regions. And uh, OCTA was important to investigate the macular perfusion in these eyes. Please note that uh, the uh, structural CT was also employed to investigate the reflectivity of the ellipsoid zone. Uh, the reflectivity of the ellipsoid zone is known to be reduced in patients with diabetes as a reduced function of photoreceptors uh, is associated with a reduced reflectivity of the ellipsoid zone. So let's go to the results of our study. We proved that there is a reduced function in patients with uh, mild diabetic retinopathy. We also proved that patients with the mild diabetic retinopathy are characterized by a thinning of the inner retina, while the outer retina appears to be uh, unchanged in these patients, but the reflectivity was reduced in these patients, and this may suggest that the reflectivity of the ellipsoid zone, rather than the thickness of the outer retina, may be a better biomarker of outer retinal damage in patients with diabetes. Of course, we demonstrated that patients with diabetes are characterized by a reduced macular perfusion. So both the retinal perfusion and the choroidal perfusions were reduced in patients with diabetes. And this is, uh, of course, not surprising. And uh, at this point, we tried to investigate associations between 
macular function and retinal neurodegeneration and macular hypoperfusion. And we demonstrated that the reduced function in the fovea region was associated with the choriocapillaris perfusion in the fovea region as well, while the function in the parafovea region was associated with a reduced perfusion in the uh, retinal vessels, as well as a reduced reflectivity in uh, the ellipsoid zone. So to conclude, there is an association between macular hypoperfusion and macular function in patients with mild diabetic retinopathy and the reflectivity of the lipsoid zone seems to be a good biomarker of macular function in these patients. Thank you, Enrico, for your presentation. Just a quick question, a more technical question a little bit later. Are you saying that the, the decrease in perfusion, the reduced perfusion, is the cause of the uh, functional changes or something else? So that, that's uh, an important point. Uh, I would say that it's difficult to uh, assume that the reduced perfusion is the cause of the, redu of the reduced function. Probably there is uh, an association between function and perfusion. Uh, a reduced perfusion may cause a reduced function, but even a reduced function and neurodegeneration may be the cause of the reduced perfusion. Uh, there are several studies showing that even the neurodegeneration, the inner and the outer retinal neurodegeneration, uh, may impair the perfusion in uh, mild diabetic retinopathy. So probably there is a, a pathological association between function and perfusion in these eyes. Thank you. This is the concept of neurovascular unit. There is a strict relationship between the neurological or glial function in the retina and the perfusion. And probably in the future, we need to integrate some more functional tests in the multimodal imaging proposed by Daniel before to have a, a real uh, scenario of the retina of these patients. Now we move to Carol. Carol is a professor of ophthalmology at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. Okay. And she... Uh, is uh, considering the, the, another point, which is predicting response of anti-VGF therapy, the gold standard, in eyes with DME, using deep learning-based OCT imaging analysis. The structural analysis in DME biomarkers using uh, the artificial intelligence approach. Please, Carol. Thank you very much for your kind invitation once again. So allow me to share uh, the work we are recently doing from Hong Kong. So I would like to give a little bit background about um, uh, this research work. So uh, even anti-VEGF therapy is considered as the first line in managing uh, central involved DMB. Frequent injections are costly and there are about uh, half of patients respond poorly to this treatment. Recent studies consistently show that features from OCT, for example, drill and integrity of uh, ellipsosome, could determine whether eyes with center-involved DMB would respond well to anti-VEGF treatment. However, OCT features is still mainly assessed manually and subjectively by retina specialists. There's no simple and reliable tool to guide clinicians to classify center-involved DMEIs into responsive or unresponsive to anti-vegetative treatment. 
So therefore, the purpose of our study is to develop and validated an external test a deep learning algorithm based on pre-treatment OCT images and clinical variables to predict the therapeutic response in patients with center-involved DME after anti-vaccine injections. So the methods that uh, we use is recruited subjects of ages above 18 years and diagnosed with type 1 or type 2 diabetes and study eyes with center-involved DME were treated with at least three anti-vaccine injections. We excluded eyes with other retinal disease and poor OCT image quality. So in this study, we define a good response to anti Fetus therapy as of three definitions. First definition is that there's a more than one line gain on snellum VA chart or more than 10% reduction in central suffuse uh, thickness after three anti-VEGF injection. And second definition is that focus only on VA. So is that more than one line gain on snellum VA chart after three anti-VEGF injection. And definition three, only focus on OCT, is that more than 10% reduction in central suffuse thickness after our three anti-vector injections. So the imaging device we use is a spectralis OCT only. So the primary data set is uh, using uh, the data uh, from Hong Kong. So uh, we use three hospitals in Hong Kong for uh, training and primary validation. We use data set from Hong Kong Eye Hospital, Prince of Wales Hospital, and United Christian Hospital from Hong Kong. And then we have three external testing data sets from the Westmead Institute for Medical Research at the University of Sydney in Australia. And then external tools testing is from Sakura uh, Nathalaya Hospital, China, India. And external three testing is also from India, is from Jaraiha Eye Institute. That's all the data set we use. So we developed a integrated deep learning uh, framework consisting of three networks. First network is a segmentation network to segment four major features from OCT, including intra-retinal cysts, subretinal fluid, disorganization of retinal inner layers, and outer retinal defects from OCT B-scan. And then uh, secondly, a classification network to detect the presence of these four features from OCT B-scan. And then uh, three, uh, a multimodal network that combine the raw OCT images and the results of the segmentation and classification networks that I mentioned, and the clinical variables, including visual baseline uh, visual accuracy and baseline central suffuse thickness. And the outcome of this uh, deep learning framework is no response and good response of anti treatments. So in total, we are uh, included uh, 60,477 B-scan OCD images for training and primary uh, validating our algorithm. And uh, in our discriminative performance of the algorithm, we found that the AURROC can achieve 0.731 in our primary uh, validation in the definition number one, uh, both using our uh, VA and uh, OCT uh, to define a uh, good response to uh, anti treatment. And then we found that uh, externally, uh, the AURROC can go to uh, 0.65 to 0.7 in external data set.
in this definition. For using our definition two, only focus on VA, the primary data set can go or achieve AULC of 0.631 in the primary data set, and then uh, uh, can go from uh, 0.69 to 0.728 in the external data set. And then you, when we're using the definition uh, number three, which only focusing on OCT uh, to define our outcome, the primary data set can only achieve 0.563, and then the external data set and achieve AUROC uh, roughly uh, 0.564 to 0.75. So in summary, we demonstrate the potential of using deep learning on OCT images to predict good response versus no response of anti-VEGF therapy in eyes with a center involved DMD. This may be used as a guiding tool for therapeutic selection and thereby reduce the impact on invasive and burdensome treatment for patients in whom anti-VEGF therapy is likely to be ineffective. Thank you very much for your kind attention. Thank you, Carol, for your presentation. A quick question. Uh, your group has reported a couple of years ago, less than a couple of years ago, in the British Journal of Ophthalmology, if I am correct, about the uh, OCT biomarkers uh, in an anti-VGF in DME. And you included the hyperreflective foci on OCT. Is in this algorithm this parameter included or not? A parameter I like very much. But uh, this is just a personal comment. Did you include this or not? Yeah, thank you very much for your question. Indeed, in the algorithm, we didn't uh, include this parameter because uh, the numbers is very small. So we cannot train a reliable uh, segmentation or classification algorithm for these features. But this is very good point. We hope that we can have more data because this it seems a promising parameter to predict anti-vaccine treatment. But in the deep learning work, I'm afraid we didn't include this as a feature. Yeah, yeah. Because we just, just an information, we, just, we have worked about this same idea, or better, a way of classifying by artificial intelligence DME. And we found that this kind of parameters, for example, the hyperreflective psi, may be important to understand better the pathophysiology of this individual case. Yes, totally agree with you. This will be a promising biomarker. Okay. A question, uh, Jacob, do you think that the, not the data, but the concept uh, your data provided may be extended to type 2 population diabetics? Yeah, that, that's a great question, Eduardo, and, and I think it will. Um, so in Denmark, like in so many other countries, I think uh, type 2 diabetes comprises like 90% of all patients with diabetes, so that's the vast majority. What we learned so far in Denmark was actually a bit surprising, as it turns out that the majority of those with type 2 diabetes does not have the same level of complications like those with type 1, also not like the ones that we see in hospitals with type 2. So at least in Denmark, there's a big, big group of patients with type 2 diabetes who do not have that many complications and who are not prone to develop eye complications as well. So for those patients in Denmark, we are actually extending the screening intervals so they don't need screening every year, but they can go every second year or something like that. So we're really looking into that because we can save a lot of resources there. 
Daniel, has any importance the number of pictures of imaging you are taking in your multimodal system in the classification and the prediction of patients? Meaning two pictures, two photos for upper eye or five or something else? Yeah, well, I think like uh, it depends on the models that you build. For me, I always share with people that the less is more. Because if you need less to do more, then the implementation, the chances of the adoption rate will be significantly increased. So if I can use one photo to build a good model, I will use one. But right now, a lot of the standard screening system uses two. So essentially, we'll, uh, I mean, that, that's uh, naturally we're actually using two because we already have the data. We don't want to uh, waste it. Hence, we actually use two. So of course, uh, some... Uh, screening program, if you have like, you know, seven ETDRS fields or you have uh, optos and it can actually be done in a different uh, models depending on the clinical intended use. Yeah. And can, how can you cope with the concept that now we are thinking that the periphery of the retina is becoming theoretically, theoretically, say, important in the classification or more referable phases of diabetic retinopathy? Because with two pictures, you cannot take the periphery. Yeah, uh, exactly. So I think like the, there's, a, there's a big move, uh, you know, uh, especially the Jocelyn group was the one who actually described the periphery changes actually show increased risk of DR uh, progression. So I think uh, this is a thing that they have actually uh, moved their screening to Optos-based uh, DR screening uh, system. But whereas I think uh, in order to make, uh, you know, these uh, very widely accessible screening, um, the program, it's very important to also consider many countries may not be uh, able to afford like machine, like, uh, you know, optos and things. And if you actually trying to do seven fields in the old patients who cannot cooperate, sometimes it actually make uh, the things even worse. So I think, uh, of course, we, uh, in the ideal settings, if the patient can really open their eyes in a very fully dilated pupil. Yeah, for sure. But we know the real world is not like this. And especially in a lot of the low to middle income countries, you can't do that. So I think we, we need to actually tailor the specific strategy to uh, the specific countries. Yeah, uh, that's my feel. Yeah, okay. Thank you very much for this. Uh, Enrico, just a, a technical question probably relate to my feeling to the topic you are presented is that you are discussing about the reflect because we are continuously going in depth of the OCT biomarkers and as Carol pointed out. But what do you mean exactly for the reflectivity of the ellipsoid zone? Are you speaking about the integrity or just the change in, in reflectivity itself? Yeah, that's an important question. Uh, we selected the unfast image of the ellipsoid zone. So when you select the unfast image of the ellipsoid zone, you are able to see and to measure the reflectivity of the ellipsoid zone. So that's a quantification rather than a qualitative assessment. Of course, it's a quantification with several limitations. The main limitation is that the reflectivity of the ellipsoid zone is also uh, affected by other aspects, uh, other uh, different inter-eyes differences. So we perform an algorithm to adjust the reflectivity in each patient for these differences between eyes. So that, that's a way to quantify the reflectivity of the ellipsoid zone and that's a way to measure the integrity of the ellipsoid zone as well. Yeah. 
And, and uh, I have not heard from you about the external limiting membrane. Uh, yeah, the, 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 the external limiting membrane is for sure very important, especially in patients with diabetic retinopathy, as there are several studies showing that the uh, ELM rather than the ellipsoid zone is, uh, is important in these patients. But uh, we didn't make any assessment on the integrity of the uh, ELM in these patients, and we are still not able to quantify the reflectivity of the or the integrity of this layer. But that's important because for sure uh, the ELM is important in patients with diabetic retinopathy. Uh, my, my last question to Carol is that uh, the idea of implementing these parameters to predict the response to anti-VGF, uh, you are correct about this and new, new drugs are introduced in the market. Do you think that your approach may be quite fastly diffused? You have spoken, if I'm correct, that you used, as we have used, the Hydable platform, is correct? may be uh, used in other platforms as the of the other companies or just limited to this so uh, right now we are only testing on images from spectralis but we believe that there's a good imaging image analysis tools can translate our ai algorithm on different types of oct actually this is uh, another important work that we want to develop algorithm that can be used on different types of oct devices this is a very important uh, comment to our work indeed but there's a technical way that we can uh, it seems that we can handle this issue okay thank you uh, do you have any questions for the other speakers Actually, I have a question to Dan. Uh, just want to ask about what kind of features that your AI focus on in terms of predicting our uh, referable DR. Did you uh, have any uh, way that what are the AI focus on? Uh, is it retinal vessels or which regions that we know that what does the AI focus on? So, I mean, uh, based on the multi-model system that we built, I think like the, the DR changes is definitely is a predictor. And um, we didn't actually run any explainability uh, map on, on the on the vessels, and uh, this is something that we are currently doing. Um, so I mean, if we actually have some updated, uh, you know, the findings, we would shall share with uh, you guys uh, next time. Yeah. So this is a good question. So what was the predictor uh, in the fundus photos? And uh, we hope to actually find something, uh, you know, uh, through the visualization technique that we are running now. Uh, other questions, Jacob. First of all, let me, let me say that I really like the, the presentations given by the others. It's really cutting-edge research from all over the, the world. And, and, and in particular, I like uh, the predictive presentations. And, and I, I think Daniel nicely coined this by saying that we want to look into the future. And, and, and I have a question for you on, on that matter, Dan. So, so do you have any um, predictive algorithms coming up looking at non-ocular complications in diabetes, so prediction of microvascular disease, macrovascular disease, or maybe even uh, dementia or cognitive decline? Well, I think you're talking to like the right room here, uh, even though I'm not the right person, because I can propose the right person to answer the question, which is Carol. So Carol has done a lot of work in uh, the, you know, the retinal vessels analysis, and, you know, of course, uh, uh, it's published like uh, papers in Nature, Biomedical Engineering for both the Alzheimer's and the uh, cardiovascular disease uh, domain. So Carol, why don't you share 
the great work that you're doing. One question, two answers. Perfect. <laughs> Yes, uh, thank you, Jika, for raising this up. I think uh, there's lots of opportunities to use our retina as a window to study different kind of disease. Uh, and, uh, you know, taking retinal images is relatively uh, easy compared with, uh, you know, like MRI or PET scan. And I'm very excited in this field that uh, there's a uh, recent work that uh, we've done uh, and also by other groups that uh, there's a promising AI analysis that can uh, use, that can allow us to detect, uh, for example, uh, cardiovascular disease, mortality, uh, Alzheimer's disease, etc. So I think uh, there's uh, a lot of opportunities for us to work on in the uh, European uh, community, as well as in Asian community, and even uh, a wider in the group as well. So I think it is very exciting and uh, we need to uh, work together to prove this uh, uh, concept that we can use retina to uh, you know, look into different kind of uh, other systemic diseases. I'll probably just add uh, to what uh, Carol has uh, said. I mean, uh, personally, right now, my uh, there's a program that we have started in Singapore as well to look at the real-time correlation with the coronary arteries versus the uh, the retinal vessels. So, I mean, we are currently uh, capturing the retinal images uh, for the patients who are undergoing the coronary angiograms. When they are actually recurring in the angio suite, we are actually t- uh, taking pictures of their eyes. Well, because we, don't, uh, we are trying to see whether the real-time correlation, how accurate they are in terms of, you know, using the retinal vessels to predict, the, you know, the macrovascular changes, yeah. So, I mean, stay tuned for the things. Uh, we'll keep everyone uh, updated if you find something exciting. I think that is a fascinating topic. Just for uh, Jonathan, another podcast in the future about this particular one. Vessels, the eye, diabetes and other complications. At the conclusion, I have to thank you very much. The faculty people of this uh, uh, podcast as Jacob from Odense in Denmark, Daniel from Singapore, Enrico from Italy, and Carol from Hong Kong. This uh, not multimodal, but the multicultural experience in diabetic retinopathy for this Uretina podcast. I thank you very much all of them for their presentations and the possibility to share with us their new experiences. Well, thank you, Eduardo and Renier, who, who unfortunately couldn't make it for putting together a fantastic panel uh, from around the world, Hong Kong, Italy, Denmark and Singapore, hearing the latest developments there. Absolutely fantastic. So thank you once again. That's it for us on this episode of Talking Uretina. If you enjoyed it, I'll ask you one favour. Let people know about it. The podcast is growing and it really only works with your support. So let people know across your networks. Give us a tweet or a thumbs up. Rate the podcast and subscribe. We really appreciate your support. If you have anything you'd like us to cover on the show, you can email us podcast at uretina.org. We would love to hear from you. So we'll be back in just two weeks with another episode of Talking Your Retina. I'm Jonathan McRae. I'll see you next time.